Hello, chefs. You're listening to Chef's PSA Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Natera. On today's episode, we're going to do Q&A. Stay tuned. So first, a quick update. What have I been up to? I'll tell you what the first thing I'd like to talk about is I have a newsletter and I've sent out so far two volumes of the newsletter. I plan on sending out a, a new one every Wednesday approximately. So if you're interested in receiving the newsletter, go to chefspsa.com, go to the contact page and scroll to the bottom and you should see a, a spot where you could sign up for the newsletter. Um, I plan on doing this consistently. It will most likely, like all things, evolve as I figure it out. I appreciate feedback. If you've received the newsletter, let me know what you think. But I want to keep it short, punchy, to the point, you know, something for chefs involving leadership, something for everyone that works in a kitchen, and maybe something curious that I'm doing at the moment. Speaking of something curious, some interesting things that uh, going on this week, I don't know if everyone saw the Bocuse Dior. It was an incredible competition. I'm bummed the United States did not win. I was all Team USA, but nonetheless, if you had a chance to check it out, I'd love to know what you think. I'm a big fan of watching those culinary competitions. You get to see skill at the highest level, and congratulations to Denmark on winning first place. Uh, they, they did an incredible job. Anyway, the other thing that I'm doing is I started reading Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Gadara. And I got to say, it's a great book. And if you haven't read it, I think you should. It's really a lot of the things that I believe in. You know, he talks a lot about culture and building a culture and leadership and uh, empowering his people and, and how to build a strong team. So a lot of the same things that I'm preaching, I think, I haven't disagreed with anything so far in his book. I think we use different language sometimes, but I, I think the point is always the same. And I, I would say that probably 99% of the time I'm going to agree with him on what he's saying. So if you, it's, a, it's a great book. If you haven't had a chance, check it out. Unreasonable Hospitality, uh, the new book by Will Gadara. I, I think it's fantastic. And then the uh, James Beard semi-finalist list came out here in the United States. So um, for those of you that are unaware, James Beard is a organization here in the U.S. They they put on an annual uh, chef awards, restaurant awards. Anyway, pretty cool to see a lot of the people on the list I know. Congratulations to a lot of my friends that are on there. Shout out to uh, Junior Borges, who a good friend of mine who is on the Outstanding Chef list, my friends Anastasia Quinones, um, Rick Lopez, Fermin Nunez, Tavel, um, a lot of my Texas friends that uh, that were nominated. Congratulations to all of you. Congratulations to all the nominees. It'll be exciting to see who wins. But anyway, enough about that. Let's get into today's episode, which is Q&A. And I got to say, I got a lot of questions. A lot of the questions I've answered before on other podcasts, so I'm not going to get too much into things that I've already discussed previously, but I will try to get as many questions answered as I can. If I can't get to all of them, then maybe this warrants a part two. Let me know uh, if you want to hear a second part to this and I can answer more of the questions. But anyway, let's get into the first couple of questions. So the first question is, how do I, as a young aspiring chef, separate myself from the other cooks? And as stupid as this answer may sound, I would say care more. A lot of the times, if you want to get noticed, 
you have to care a little bit more. And sometimes it's not cool to care. Like, you know, it's kind of have a flippant attitude in the kitchen or whatever uh, and be cool. Sometimes that doesn't work. And it doesn't necessarily work for the people that you're trying to impress. The attitude of not caring or I'll do more when you pay me more isn't usually the type of person that gets promoted in most kitchens. Of course, there are outliers. But I would say what I would do to get noticed is care tremendously about what you're doing, care about the food that you're producing, care about showing up to work on time, be a professional, be polite, be engaged, listen when people are talking, take notes. I would say doing all those things gets you noticed. The things that um, don't get you noticed is when you just kind of fall under the radar, you don't speak up, uh, you, you kind of fall in the background. That person tends to not get noticed. And, and maybe they do care a lot, but they're just quiet. So um, being involved, being engaged, demonstrating that you care, taking an active role in leadership, even though you are not a leader. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. Maybe it's like there's some downtime. You take it upon yourself to go organize the cooler. Those are the type of things that get you noticed. Not just doing what you get paid to do, but going above above and beyond what you get paid to do. That's what gets you noticed. And I've talked about this on another episode. I think it was the sous chef episode. One of the things that I think people fail to realize is the attitude of, I will do more when you pay me more. And then there's someone else that says, I'll do it regardless of what you pay me. When the time for promotion comes up, usually the person that did it regardless will be the person that gets promoted because... I know as the person who's doing the promoting, when the going gets tough, this person has demonstrated that they will do it. The other person is an unproven, unknown commodity. Will they do it when the time gets tough? Because they say they'll do it if you pay them, but will they really? The other person will do it even if you don't pay them. So if you are in a position to promote someone, who are you going to pick? The person who will do it even if you don't ask them to do it or the person who will only do it if you pay them more. I, I mean, if you run a business, it's a no brainer who you're going to promote. A lot of people might not understand that concept. I know I, I talked to a lot of people, you know, when I was a chef that, you know, pay me more and I'll do more. Th those people struggle getting promoted. I, I could tell you uh, with 100% certainty, trust me, I know what I'm telling you. You have to demonstrate that you are willing to do more than everyone else on your team because the person that's willing to do more than everyone else on the team and cares more is the person that gets promoted. Good question though. The next question I have here is when is it time for a cook to take a management position? Well, there, there's two ways to know when you're ready. One, someone will tell you, so maybe your sous chef or your head chef, whatever, will come up to you and say, hey, I think you need to start looking into growing into a bigger role. You've demonstrated a lot of leadership capabilities. Maybe we want to move you up. So sometimes they'll come and tell you. When you're ready, when everyone else knows you're ready, they will definitely let you know. But also sometimes you're not ready and you just got to take the leap of faith. You got to just say, I'm going to jump in and learn how to swim. And if you're not ready, you might fail and you'll have to take a step back and reassess and go back and figure out what you did wrong so you could get better. But the only way to know is to try. And a lot of times in our careers, we get stuck and we're paralyzed with fear because we're unsure if we're ready and we, we, we hesitate. And you can't do that. If you think you're ready, then try it. 
ask. Maybe you're not ready, but maybe you still go up to your chef or your mentor or whoever and say, hey, I think I'm ready. I'd like to be considered from this position. And they might say, great, let's put you in. Or they might say, you're not ready and here's what you need to do, which is great also because now you have something tangible that you could say, I could go back and work on this. I could go back and look at these things that they said I need improvement on and I'll go improve that. So that would be my advice. You might be ready, you might not, but there's only one way to find out, and that's just to jump in. So there's not like a magic answer that says, this is how you know because you could do all this. But the fact of the matter is, you just got to try. You got to let it be known that you're interested. You got to ask for it. And sometimes you just got to lose your fear and jump right in. Anyway, good question. The next question I have is, what is more important in the restaurant, food or ambiance? And honestly, that's that's a difficult question to answer. As a chef, I'm always going to say food is more important. But if you don't have a great restaurant that matches the food, sometimes it's a disconnect and it doesn't work out. And I'll tell you what, there's very successful restaurants on both ends of the spectrum, right? You could point to beautiful restaurants with terrible food that are very successful. They have a great ambiance. The music is great. The decor is beautiful. The vibe is just humming. You have all these people in there giving the room energy, but the food is meh. It's nothing, uh, nothing memorable. And those restaurants are some of the best restaurants and they're the most profitable restaurants around. However, there's also restaurants on the other end of the spectrum, you know, just, you know, a, a very humble dining room. Maybe it's a food truck or whatever the case may be in the middle of nowhere, but people line up out the door to get the food because the food is just that good. Something that comes to mind is just like a, a simple restaurant with light decor, maybe just some wooden tables and you know plastic chairs, but there's a line out the door because everyone wants to try the food because it's that amazing. So an argument can be made either way. I think you need to have strength on one end or the other, if, if not both. I mean, obviously, in, the, in an ideal setting, you want strong ambience, strong food. If I could choose just one, I would choose... I would probably choose food. I would probably choose food because I'm a chef at heart, right? So food first. But the businessman in me says, you know, I, I could have the most beautiful restaurant and uh, good service and the food could be okay and the restaurant will still be busy. So I don't know. An argument could be made either way. It's a great question. And it's something that could be debated. And I'm sure you could list tons of examples on both ends, beautiful restaurants that are profitable um, with mediocre food and vice versa. This is a good question. It's kind of long, so I'm going to I'm going to shorten it, but the gist of the question is how do you manage your culinary team when you don't get the support from ownership with regards to the hours and the pay to, to keep them and maybe they have to work off the clock and do some illegal and unethical things. I think if you're in a situation where you ever have to do something illegal or unethical, you should stop because it's a slippery slope. And doing one thing then leads to two things. And before you know it, you're way on the other side of the line and you're doing all sorts of things that are unethical. I, th I think you got to stop and regroup. And I think you need to have a conversation with your owners and say, if this is what you expect me to deliver, I cannot deliver with these parameters that you've given me. And there has to be some form of compromise on this. So either you as the chef need to look in the mirror and say, maybe the food that I'm trying to produce, maybe I'm punching above my weight with the resources that I have. Maybe my cooks aren't skilled enough. Maybe, maybe I'm putting some ego in the dish um, that doesn't need to be there. Maybe I need to pull back the food and do something more simple based on the budget that I have. Because you shouldn't compromise 
the integrity of yourself as a chef and have to do unethical things for the quality of food. In, in my opinion, just do the right thing. And if the food is, if, if you have to pull back a little bit, then you, then you pull back a little bit so you could do the right thing. So you need to let the ownership know either we adjust the food that we're making or you give more money for the resources that I need to do the job. And, and if neither are willing to budge, then it's probably a situation where you need to walk away because you will end up doing something stupid, right? You're going to end up doing something harmful to yourself, to the restaurant, to the owner, to the people that work for you. So at a certain point, if it's not feasible, if you are unwilling to adjust the quality of food and they're unwilling to give you more money to do it, then I think at a certain point, you got to walk away and say, this is just, this is just not right for me. And most likely it's not going to end in a good situation. Anyway, good question. Very tough to answer without knowing the ins and outs of the specific restaurant and specific owner. But I think it's a very common thing that I've seen throughout my career is you want to push very high on the food, but you don't necessarily have the resources to do it. And ownership sometimes will drive you and say, Hey, we want more. We want more you know, better quality, lower food cost, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there comes a, a certain point when it's unsustainable and you as the chef need to stand your ground. And I'll tell you a story. When I was, I think on my second executive chef position, and I was still very quiet and humble and shy around some of the more senior executives, owners and things like that. And my boss pulled me off to the side. And this was actually wasn't even my boss. It was my boss's boss pulled me off to the side and said, hey, you got a seat at the table. We pay you because we want you to have a voice. So if you're just going to agree with everything that we say, that you're not really bringing any value. So you need to learn to have your voice and you need to speak up on the things that you're passionate about. That's why we pay you. We pay you to lead in this position. And if they just want to puppet, then maybe, maybe that's not the right position for you. So if you're put in a position of leadership and you're put in a position to to be the expert, then be the expert and make sure you voice your concerns professionally, respectfully, draw a hard line in the sand on what's on what you're not willing to compromise on. Anyway, good question though. Very difficult to answer, but good question. I, I hope that shed some insight maybe in how to handle it. This next question is what could I do to be more professional in the kitchen and culinary knowledge? Uh, short answer, cook more, work more in kitchens, work around more professionals, work around people that are better than you. If you want to increase your knowledge, the quickest way is going to be to surround yourself with people that are at a higher level than yourself. If you are at the highest level, and I put a PSA up on this the other day, if you are the best cook in the kitchen, you might be in the wrong kitchen. Now, some people argued with me and said, well, what about leadership if you're trying to develop your leadership skills? Well, you could also learn leadership skills around better leaders. Now, it's a fine line. Maybe you don't want to leave the team that you're behind, but at the end of the day, what's going to better you and your career? So it's a, it's a tough decision. Only you could answer that. But if you want to get better in the kitchen, the quickest way is to, is to surround yourself with people that are at a higher level than you, more skilled than you, more knowledgeable than you. If you're the most knowledgeable person in the kitchen, sometimes that's good for your ego, but it's not good for your growth. So that's the quickest way is just to fully immerse yourself as a student until you have a harder and harder time finding places where you are not the student anymore. And you'll, you'll be aware all of a sudden you've transitioned into that teacher role, into that leader role. So that would be, uh, hopefully that answers your question in a simple way. This next question is when menu planning, do you start with an idea or do you start with an ingredient? 
I start with both, and it's not so it's not so straightforward. I might be doing a seasonal menu, and I might be focused around specific ingredients. So let's just say I'm doing a spring menu, and it's lamb and morels and asparagus and peas, and so I'm going to start with the ingredients. Um, and other times, maybe I'm walking through an art gallery, and I see a, a beautiful painting, and the colors inspire me, and so I get an idea for something. So I would say it it really happens both ways. There's not there's not a set in stone formula for people to get creative. I would say the a good little tip when it comes to getting more creative is to immerse yourself in the idea of creative exercises. You know, go to museums, spend time in nature, talk to people that are creative, go see artwork. All these things start to get the creative juices in your mind simmering and flowing and and you'll start to see things differently. There's a really good book that I read a long time ago. Let me see if I can remember the title. Oh, yeah. It was titled How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And that is just a, a book that's an exercise in creativity when you, you know, obviously one of the most creative people to have ever lived is uh, Leonardo. But they said things like the way he would get creative, like he would lay down on the floor and look at things upside down. And, you know, just he did everything to to stimulate his creative energy. So that's a good book to use as a reference. But to answer your question, there isn't a, uh, a one size fits all answer to that. So whatever is working best for you, that's giving you the best results, continue to do that, right? So hope that helps. The next question is, how can I improve my speed as a cook? Because all my peers keep telling me I'm slow, uh, work faster. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, Really, you just got to cook more. You, you gain speed with experience. But when you practice, practice really good technique and with the idea that, okay, how do I get faster? Something I used to do is I would write down little goals for myself. So let's just say I was dicing a case of tomatoes and I would say, okay, what was the time I'd set the clock? Okay, we did it in 30 minutes. Great. Tomorrow, let's try and get it in 28 minutes. And the next day, uh, you know, 27 minutes. So always be pushing yourself to just be a little bit more efficient in whatever it is that you're doing. Obviously, with repetition and practice, you will get faster. Something I've talked about before, but I'll say it again here if this is the first time that... Um, that you're hearing it is I would go to the store and buy some inexpensive ingredients like a whole chicken, some potatoes, some onions and eggs. I guess eggs aren't inexpensive these days with the price going up. But anyway, I would get those four things and you could make a lot of different things. So with your onions, you could practice your knife skills, julienne, brunoise, et cetera, et cetera, dicing, slicing, et cetera. With your chicken, you could practice trussing, roasting, butchering, deboning, making stock. Like you could practice so many things with that chicken, brining and so on. With your potato, you could you could practice your tournée. You could practice again, dicing, brunoise, julienne, etc. Um, you could also make mashed potatoes, palm puree, gnocchi, and on and on. And with eggs, obviously, you could learn all your different styles of egg cookery, flipping eggs in a pan, making omelets, different styles of omelets, the American style, the European style, the French omelet, and on and on. But with those simple ingredients, and they're relatively inexpensive, you could just continue to just like, okay, I'm going to buy a sack of potatoes, and I'm going to brunoise all the potatoes. And then, you know, by the end of, by the end of that, I should be faster because you will have repetition, um, some reps under your belt. I'll tell you a funny story is, uh, you know, you, if you wanted to learn how to brunoise, I had like 50 cooks that I was training on brunoise and that's all they do for like five hours. There was just brunoise and then we'd get it and then, you know, make soup out of it. And they were like, so frustrated, like, wow, why do you, why do you do that with the brunoise? And it was like, 
Well, because we don't need it, and this is this is practice, right? And I was so picky about the Brunois, like, no, it has to be this, has to be this. But this was just training. And then when we got into the real world application, their knife skills were like, honestly, people would come up to me and be like, damn, their knife skills are so good. How how do you how are your cook's knife skills so good? It's like because they just practiced it all day long for days on end. And I guarantee you, some of those cooks right now that have worked with me during that specific period, their knife skills are probably better than most chef instructors that are teaching knife skills. That's how good they are. So anyway, the key to get better at anything is repetition. If you want to get faster, um, like I said, just practice. Make it a point to be aware of the time and then also just repetition. The next question I have here is what does an aspiring chef need to keep in mind during their education? I would say this, and I'll, I'll keep this answer short, is that it doesn't matter how much you read or how much YouTube videos you watch or how much Instagram you look at or how much vocabulary you have or how well you could explain you know, the, the process of lacto-fermentation. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is can you do it? So I would say for an aspiring young chef during your education, remember all of that is theory. Until you could do it, it doesn't matter that you have a, a very comprehensive vocabulary. You could talk about it all day. Great. Can you do it? Oh, you can't? Then it doesn't matter. So I would say keep that in mind. No one is impressed with what you say if you can't do it in the kitchen. So if you're on the line, it doesn't matter that you know all the terminology and that you went to the school and you have this great degree. Okay, great. But can you do it? No, then then you don't know it. You don't truly know something until you can do it. You might know how to talk about it, but you don't know it fully. This next question is, as a starter chef who cannot afford culinary education, what is your advice? I would say just start working. Find out what the best restaurants are in your area and just go apply. Even if it's as a dishwasher, just get in those kitchens and let them know. Even if you go in as a dishwasher, let them know, I aspire to be a cook. I'll start in the dish station. And then when you see that I'm ready and you see that I'm a hard worker, will you move me up? And if they don't move you up after a certain amount of time, then you need, you need to leave. But just getting into kitchens, getting into good kitchens is the key. And surrounding yourself, as I said before, with great chefs is probably the best education you could get. Culinary school is great, and I'm not knocking it. I've gone to culinary school, and it gives you a formal education, but it's just theory. Getting in and being able to do it is, like I just said, more important than the theory. So actual knowledge is more important. The next question is, which chef would you rather hire, a culinary school chef or an entrepreneur experienced chef? I think it really depends on the position. Sometimes for an entry-level position, I don't want a super experienced chef because they might get discouraged in the entry level. And sometimes for, sometimes even for an experienced position, I'd rather have someone inexperienced because I want to teach them how I want it to be done. Sometimes your education can be a detriment. And I'll tell you what I mean. So let's say you've worked 10 years in a certain type of restaurant and I'm running a different type of restaurant. And then you come to my restaurant and you say, hey, I want to be the sous chef here because I have 10 years experience. And I might say, yes, but it's not in the style of food that I'm doing or in the type of kitchen that I'm running. So it, it doesn't match up. And then maybe I make the mistake and I hire this person anyway. And right away, I see that was a mistake because they want to run it the way that they ran it at the other place. And it's completely different from how I want it. So sometimes starting from zero is better. It really depends on what you're looking for and what's going to be best for your operation. And there's a case to be made for both ends. So it's, it's not, again, it's not a one size fits all answer. There is a lot of gray in a lot of these answers. So I apologize for that, but Hey, life is gray sometimes. And I guess the, the best way to answer it is make the right decision 
Make the right decision based on the opportunities that have presented themselves to you for what you need would probably be the best thing I could say. Next question is, how do you impress in an interview having little experience in a professional kitchen? So in my culinary leadership fundamentals book, I talk about this a little bit and I go in depth on, you know, make sure that you're polished, make sure you look like you're ready for the job that you're applying for. Some simple tricks that I like to talk about is when you introduce your person yourself to the person, shake their hand. If you know, if handshakes are a thing, say your name, say I'm Andre Natera. Nice to meet you. They, they're going to say, hi, I'm Bill. And you say, hi, Bill. Nice to meet you. Bill may, do you mind if I have a seat? Try to use their name twice. It's just a little psychological trick that I use is the sweetest sound to everyone's ears is their own name. So say their name twice within the first 30 seconds, smile, uh, don't seat yourself, ask if you can be seated, be professional, have your resume in hand. Um, make sure your resume has been proofread. There's no typos. Um, make sure your, your experience is correct. Don't embellish. People call each other and, and check on that. Also make sure that the dates are on there in position. You don't want the person looking at your resume to have to ask the questions like, oh, here it says you're still working there. Are you still working there? Oh, no, no, I left uh, two years ago, whatever the case may be. Double check your resume, make sure it's accurate. Um, and then the last thing I would say that would impress during an interview is I always say, come prepared with at least three questions. Nothing is worse than an interview when you close it up and you say, uh, do you have any questions? They're like, nope, I think you answered all my questions. That to me is one of the worst things you could do. Have three questions prepared and simple. Like you could ask them, like, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? What's your leadership style like? Whatever the case may be, just have some questions. And the reason I say that is because one, you look like you're prepared. And number two, everyone's favorite subject is themselves. So if you ask them questions about themselves, they will love to talk about themselves. So one of the best things you could do in an interview is get them to talk about themselves. They'll leave the interviews thinking, boy, I really like talking to that person. They were, they were a great conversationalist. Um, study body language if you uh, really want to get polished on interviewing skills and uh, something called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. That's something else you could study. Um, and, and that's just like subtle persuasion techniques that you could use to uh, get a slight edge in the interview process. So anyway, that's, that's my advice there. The next question is, how do you personally deal with imposter syndrome if you've ever had it? Um, I don't personally deal with it because I don't think I've had it. Now, I know with imposter syndrome, it's the idea of people being in a position or having a certain amount of success that they feel that maybe they don't deserve or there's other people that are better than them. Um, I tone that noise down. I don't think about it. I'm not in, com I'm not in competition with anyone else. I am in a perpetual competition with my own mind and with myself. And I would encourage you to do that. You're not competing with anyone else. It doesn't matter if they're a better chef than you. You're not competing with them. You're competing with who you were yesterday. That's it. All you're trying to do is beat the person that you were yesterday and be better than them. So I would say stop thinking about that. Stop comparing yourself to others. It's, it's, a, it's a dog chasing its tail. It's never going to stop. And there really is no reward because there will always... Trust me, there's always someone better at everything than you. There's someone that knows more about food. There's someone that's more successful. And you could use that as motivation for you to get better, but it's not realistic for you to compare yourself to someone because you have no idea what's going on in their mind. The only thing that you could control is yourself. Be better than yourself yesterday, period. So I, I don't struggle with imposter syndrome, but as I speak to people who do, that would be my advice for them is quit 
giving your energy to other people and reverse that energy and channel it into yourself and improving yourself. And it's a better use of the energy that you have. This is the last question. And it was asked about three or four times in the, uh, in the DMS. And it's a, it's a tough question for me to answer. So I saved it for the end. And that is, you know, what is my personal rock bottom if I'm willing to share it or the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my career. And I'll tell you that I had a period of maybe the worst year ever, and that was, um, you know, I had I had uh, lost everything, for lack of a better term. I lost everything that I had accumulated over the course of my career. I had reached a certain point of success where I was top of the food chain in the city that I was at. You know, I was best chef two years consecutive. Um, I was in the running for the best chef in the city. I had all the stars from the newspaper. I was getting all the recognition. I was probably on TV once a week doing something. I had gotten uh, inducted into the MasterChef Society and I was turning opportunities down because there were so many and I was at the top of the world. And when that happened, I had got some advice from my mentor and they, they told me, they said, do not get too puffed up when all this success happens because you could lose it just as quick as it came. And I remember thinking, that's not me. I'm humble. That won't happen. But sure, shit, I did. My ego got the best of me, and it was one thing after the other, and my life just started crumbling bad. And basically, I went into a downward spiral and probably was willing to bring down anyone around me, you know, to, to my rock bottom that, you know, wanted to go with me. Every chef wants to get to a certain spot in their career, and sometimes that's owning your own restaurant. And being the best version of yourself. And when you reach that and it's all taken away from you and you have to start over again, it's a very humbling situation. And it took me a number of years to mentally recover from that and understand what I did wrong and understand what I needed to do to get better. There's no one to blame. You can only blame yourself. And, and you go through these mental exercises. Well, whose fault was it? And at the end of the day, you can't blame anyone. You can only blame yourself. You have to accept full responsibility for the good and the bad that happens in your life. And I often use the expression, everyone loves being the hammer, but no one likes to be the nail. And in this particular case, I was the nail. And as bad thing after bad thing after bad thing started happening, it's like, shit. I don't like this and I have to figure out how to correct it. I think when you're a very successful chef and you quickly turn around and you're no longer a successful chef, I, I think your ego gets bruised and you have to remove yourself from that so you could correct it and understand that. And that's honestly a big reason why I started Chef's PSA because a lot of the, the mistakes that I made in my career, I'm hoping that I could teach people to not make those same mistakes. And not that they're avoidable because some of you have to go through these mistakes because that's what's going to make you who you are. Mistakes aren't bad. But some of the rougher lessons, if you could be knowledgeable when you approach these situations, and it's like understanding the moves on the chessboard saying, ah, I know that last time I was watching the chess game, this person made that move and they failed and they captured the king. So I'm not going to make that same mistake. Now, your king may get captured in a later move, but you'll at least have not made that mistake. You'll have another mistake to learn from. So anyway, that that's basically the... The, the worst thing that's ever happened to me is accumulating a, a massive amount of success only to have it 
basically washed away overnight and then having to completely rebuild that. And it honestly took me about mm, probably about four years to get back to the same level that I was previously in, in terms of, of reputation and, uh, you know, you know, getting on, getting on top of the city, basically wherever I was and having a restaurant that was in that same level. Anyway, that that's probably the most difficult thing is adversity will make you stronger. So don't shy away from the adversity. Adversity makes you better. Um, it definitely did in, in my case. It helped me recognize some blind spots that I had. It helped me correct, you know, the, the culture that I was creating in kitchens. It made me realize that, you know, like all like all, all stories, you know, your hero has a character arc in my case, like I was good at the beginning, then I turned bad. And then at the end I was good, like Darth Vader or Anakin Skywalker, right? I had my Darth Vader period. And then I went back to Anakin Skywalker. Anyway, that's going to wrap up this week's chef's PSA podcast. If you want to support the show, you could go to chefspsa.com and you could look at our merchandise. We have some great t-shirts, et cetera. We have the three books, Culinary Leadership Fundamentals, Line Cook Survival Manual, How Not to Be the Biggest Idiot in the Kitchen. There's the video course that you could buy or rent on Culinary Leadership Fundamentals. Sign up for the newsletter. Subscribe. Leave five stars on whatever you're listening on right now. So if it's Spotify, make sure you leave five stars. Nothing else is acceptable. This is a five-star podcast. Thank you so much. And hit the porno music.